This is an ABC podcast. In many countries, women judges face huge obstacles and sometimes the threat of violence. Before even going to prison, they had people that would follow my house, follow my family, and they would know where I am, what I do, so they would fight me and they would threaten me, and I was always feeling in danger. Any time they could be betrayed effectively by relatives who were being pressured by the Taliban or by the criminals or terrorists that are after the particular judges. But wherever in the world they are and whatever challenges they face, women judges have strong networks and sometimes they even save each other's lives. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. Today on RN Summer, the first of a two-part special focusing on women judges. Earlier this year saw celebrations and events all around the world to acknowledge the inaugural United Nations Day of Women Judges. The purpose of having a day focused on women judges, I think, is to really draw attention to the underlying issues that are needed in respect of justice and access to justice for all of society and including women. Justice Susan Glazebrook of the New Zealand Supreme Court is president of the International Association of Women Judges, which has about 6,500 members across the world. There is debate as to whether women judges decide cases differently from male judges. I'm probably in the camp that says probably not um, in terms of the legal principles that are involved, but they may decide them in a different way in terms of being more inclusive in the courtroom and possibly also in the way that they frame their reasons, that their reasons may well be framed to take account of um, their own diverse experience as women and also taking account uh, possibly of the human element. And that's not to say that male judges don't do that as well, but that's the benefit of having those diverse experiences in the judiciary, that the judiciary reflects society. Now, in many um, areas, women have not traditionally been in the judicial system and certainly not in the higher echelons of the judicial system. Even probably the best ratios are still around 30% and they've stayed that way for some time. Now, when you're looking at it, it should be 50% because women are 50% of the community and in many um, instances that is a, a far away dream. Tell me in a nutshell, what are the goals of the organisation? I would say in a nutshell, we're an organisation that's devoted to the rule of law, to gender equality and to equal access to justice for all. And when we speak about justice, we mean justice that has a proper effect on people's lives rather than uh, perhaps that black letter justice that looks more at what might be said to be the law and no matter what. Here in Australia, the celebrations marking the inaugural International Day of Women Judges were very special and joyful. Judge Fleur Kingham is president of the Land Court of Queensland. 
She's head of the Australian chapter of the International Association. She hosted an event in Brisbane. It was held in the Banco Court in Queensland, in the Supreme Court. It's our ceremonial court. But because it's a national association, we did what we could to involve judges from all around Australia and, in fact, um, also in Papua New Guinea as part of the event. And we did that virtually. There were, what, about 100 people in attendance in Brisbane and, 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 and you know, several hundred at least uh, were piped in uh, via uh, digital means. I understand that an Afghan judge attended in person and, and a number of other Afghan judges beamed in virtually from around the country. They're part of a group of Afghan women judges who are now in Australia as a result of the efforts of the International Association of Women Judges. How many judges are now in Australia well, I'm pleased to say we now have 17 judges and their families in Melbourne and Sydney, and um, they're in the process of, of settling in and we're getting to know them. So at the event, we had one of the judges, Judge Shakila Shagaf, who was a former president of the Afghan Women Judges Association. She came to the event in Brisbane with um, a member of her family, and at this gathering, Shakila Shagaf was reunited with a group of people who were instrumental in helping uh, women judges escape Afghanistan following the fall of Kabul to the Taliban in August last year. Now, one of them was Kay Danes, a, a strategic advocate, a, a crisis consultant with enormous expertise. Another was New South Wales judge Robin Tupman. Tell me, what did you witness when judges Tupman and Shagaf met? It was um, it was a joyous occasion all around. There was so much celebration in the room, not just from Shaquilla and Robin, but from the the women judges and the other people who attended the event, just to to welcome a judge who'd been through such a, a difficult path to Australia. And um, I can say that there was a lot of excitement in the room, and uh, Judge Shagaf, although she was a little bit weary, she would not leave that. Uh, celebration until she had spoken to every person who wanted to speak to her. Until August last year, Shakila Abawi Shigaf was president of the Afghan Women Judges Association, which had about 250 to 300 members. Judge Shakila Shigaf, what types of cases did you hear as a judge in Afghanistan? <laughs> As a judge, as a woman judge back in Afghanistan, the previous government that used to be in Afghanistan, I used to do cases with family violence, cases with um, terrorists, and any cases like children protection and things like that. There was cases that was very important for me, the cases that the Taliban would wear an um, explosion um, with, that they would just stand near a university, all the places that a young um, generation would go for a study in schools and colleges like that, just to kill many people. Lots of cases that I face is that um, killing and kidnapping, um, this was the worst thing, and also deaths and things like that, when they had weapon, this was the worst thing. One of the cases that I wanted to speak about was sexual abuse towards women and young um, girls in Afghanistan. And it was more coming um, from the people who are more in power. These are the cases that I would make a decision or take a decision towards. 
Did you ever feel threatened when you were carrying out this work? Yes, I always felt threatened. I always felt being in danger after actually decision of the judge that was made. Even if their decision was made that they had to be prisoners, before even going to prison, they had people that would follow my house, follow my family, and they would know where I am, what I do. So they would find me and they would threaten me. And I was always feeling in danger. Following the fall of Kabul to the Taliban in the middle of last year, you left Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, the Taliban did not want uh, women judges anymore. How did you leave the country? On the 15th of August, when the Taliban taken over the whole Kabul, at 9am I had to be at work and everything was normal. As I was in court to solve the cases that was meant to be solved for that day, when we heard people screaming, saying, you have to leave, you have to leave, and everybody had to leave. No matter what you were doing, you just had to leave behind all the um, legal books that I was meant to have with me, all my work, all my paperwork, everything was left behind. All the doors had to be open. People had to run for their life. I could see on the streets that people were running, not just for their life. A lot of people were running to run out of the country, to go out, no matter if they had family behind or anything. I ended up with blisters on my feet by walking and running towards my own house. When I left around nine o'clock, from my workplace, by the time I got home, it was 5 p.m. And that is a horror day that I never forget in my life. And when we were at home, that's when I could see all the neighbors' houses, the people who were in the government, all their cars, all their weapons and everything was taken from them and they had nothing to live with. In Afghanistan, women judges had good reason to be terrified. Just months before the Taliban takeover, two women judges were shot dead on their way into work. When the Taliban took over, the worst thing and the most fierce thing was as a judge to see when they opened all the prison doors, when they actually, no matter who was accused of what, who was what criminal they had done, why they were in, in jails and everybody, all of them, single by single, the doors were open and they were all on the streets. And those were the people that we were feared of and scared of that they might find us and they might kidnap us or kill us. So this was the most um, horrific and scary thing. You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. After the fall of Kabul, the International Association of Women Judges immediately kicked into action, trying to get judges on the very limited number of flights leaving the city. New South Wales District Court Judge Robin Tupman is Secretary and Treasurer of the International Association of Women Judges. As soon as uh, it became clear that Kabul was going to fall, 
and the women started to contact us frightened uh, because they were being threatened by the people who they'd sentenced, we set up this 24-7 Zoom session um, where we had women judges from New Zealand, Australia, Spain, the US, the United Kingdom and Canada, six six of us or seven, there were seven or eight of us, I think, but from those countries. And we just kind of divided the time zones up. Uh, Justice Glazebrook and I from New Zealand were on the night shift, as we called it, because everybody else was asleep. And um, we just kept the, the channels open for uh, people to be in contact. We then started up a sort of a, a signal group so that people could contact us. In fact, one particular night we're on call the whole time as one of the leaders of the Afghan Women Judges Association worked her way through the gates into the airport. And so we could actually hear um, sort of gunfire in the background as she retreated a couple of times and another couple of times where one of the other leaders finally found her way through into the airport. That was before the suicide bomb at the end of August. So that's the sort of thing we did. We kept that up for quite some time. From the other side of the world, Judge Robin Tupman and Justice Susan Glazebrook were on the phone as their Afghan colleagues tried to navigate the chaotic and dangerous airport. Unlike um, many of the people who were taken to the airport who were um, chauffeur-driven effectively through vehicle gates, our women with their young children had to effectively navigate through. There were two checkpoints um, where there were tear gas, um, rifles fired in the air and rubber hoses, which were used to beat um, people back. There were um, then an unbelievable crush of people in um, searing heat that you had to get through. It usually took um, something like between 20 and 30 hours. And the last little bit was effectively going through a sewer on the whole, about knee-deep water, um, it's not crawling through through the, the sewer that you might um, might have an image of, but it was certainly sewer-like and very, very difficult for anybody with young children, as you can imagine. And a number of judges heartbreakingly had to turn back, even though we were able to say the Polish soldiers can see you, you just have to go a little bit further, but they just could not get their children through that sewer to get to the end point and get into the airport. So how many judges got onto the planes? We had about 30 escaping in terms of the before the withdrawal of foreign troops. Um, after the withdrawal of foreign troops, um, effectively it fell to civil society to rescue the remaining people in Afghanistan. So it fell to um, small NGOs like us. Um, we didn't um, do evacuations ourselves, but we begged and borrowed as far as we could and advocated for our judges to be on flights that were being organised by other NGOs like the International Bar Association um, and other entities. So... We've had 30 before the withdrawal of foreign troops um, uh, and their families. And since the withdrawal of foreign troops, we've had um, something like 150 judges and their families who have been able to be evacuated. Um, That leaves about 90 women and their families left in Afghanistan. And are you in contact with those those 90 women and their their families? And what is their situation now? What, What risks are they facing? We're in contact with many of them, um, both as a committee and uh, and personally. 
most of them are in, in hiding. Um, some of them are in hiding with relatives. Um, some of them, I know one woman hasn't actually come out of her back room in her house for the whole of the time since August. Uh, they're in a very precarious situation because at any time they could be betrayed effectively by uh, relatives who are being uh, uh, pressured by the Taliban or by the um, particular criminals or terrorists that uh, are after the particular judges. Judge Robin Tupman says she and Justice Glazebrook are continuing to assist their Afghan colleagues. We don't do that 24-7 any longer, but we have a group that we're in touch with constantly where we work together to try and find other avenues for the women to leave Afghanistan. I mean, there were about 250 women judges in Afghanistan at the time the Taliban took over, members of our association. And we've managed to get out, I think it's about 170 or something, not not us personally, but together with others who did the actual physical evacuations. We've got out about 170 since then to various parts of the world, including Australia. Judge Shigarth and her family are among those to make it to Australia. They weren't able to board a flight before foreign troops left Kabul. Instead, with the assistance of the International Association of Women Judges, they fled to the far north of the country and from there left Afghanistan and are now in Melbourne. We got help. The first biggest help was that we've survived and um, we were discharged from Afghanistan by the help of Ms. Tompman. And um, we got back on social media, on YouTube channels with the help of Ms. Tompman. They helped a lot to get the um, application for sponsorship from Afghanistan to come here and even um, helping to get set up. So we are very thankful and got a lot of help. Even now in Australia, we are still getting help from her. So judges like Robin Tupman, Flew Kingham and also retired uh, family law Chief Justice Diana Bryant have been important in securing your arrival, but I understand they're also very helpful in helping you settle and feel welcome here in Australia. When we arrived, we were welcomed by um, Robert Tompman and some other judges as well, and we felt very happy. We are actually happy now. We felt very safe and we got to know the peace of mind that we are safe and we are in a country that we can stand up for ourselves and there are people that like a backbone behind us and they can help us. I was very lucky and fortunate and I'm very happy that I met people who are in the same field with me, like Judges Flo, Judges Robin Tompman and other people that I met. On the day that actually the meeting was set for us to meet people and judges in Carlton Park. Um, we met people. We got information about Australian culture. We actually um, felt very welcome to Australia. We got gifts. Um, there was food um, and everything. And when I saw that my children are also feeling safe, that gave me a peace of mind and taken all my stress out. And I don't feel as depressed as I was on that time when I arrived. And the support and friendship from the Australian chapter of the International Association of Women Judges is ongoing. Diana Bryant, who was Chief Justice of the Family Court of Australia from 2004 to 2017, 
is very much engaged with the Afghan judges who are settling in Melbourne. When they first arrived, we had some volunteer judges. The moment they're, I think they're all retired judges. And we thought it would be easier to split the families up so that we have a one-on-one relationship with the family. So each of the judges has a family for whom they're responsible. We called it a buddy system. Um, The Australian word buddy, of course, being friend, and that's absolutely what it is. We then interact with each each of us in a a way that's required with with the group, family group that, um, that we're sort of assigned to. And I've been fortunate to be able to spend a bit of time with Shigella and her family. They've, we've had picnics. They've come down to, um, to the beach where I live and um, I took them out for fish and chips, which they had not had before. And then the last time we had a picnic, they came to my place and brought some lovely Afghani food. So, I mean, there are different stages, obviously, to go through, but now most of them are settled. Um, they'll be talking then about employment opportunities and what comes next. For me, it's been a you know, privilege to be involved and I... It's really nice to hear Shaquilla say that she feels sort of safe and uh, settled and that's the idea that they've got someone they can turn to if they've got a problem or who can help them and just sort of help them basically assimilate. And I think it's really important, as Shaquilla says as well, to be able to interact with, with other judges and other members of the legal community. But I think it's also important that, you know, we do as the Australian Association make sure that we look after all of the judges who are coming and you know, be a friend to them because that's what it's really about. There are, I think, three or four more families just arriving in Melbourne and we've already been talking about four more judges who are prepared to, again, be a buddy for each of those families. So four have come already and, and four more are on their way. Yeah, or, or some have just arrived, I think so, Yes. I asked Judge Fleur Kingham, what are the employment prospects for Afghan women judges now here in Australia? They're not going to suddenly appear on the benches in courts in Australia. However, the Afghan system is a civil law system, so uh, some of the judges are quite young. And uh, they enter the judicial stream as young women and not too long after graduation and they have a long judicial career. For the younger judges, there is certainly the prospect for them to be admitted as legal practitioners and to practice here and who knows what their future might hold in 15 years' time. For the older judges, yes, uh, there would not be an expectation that they they may not even be interested in, in continuing a legal professional career. However, we're looking at things like uh, training and accrediting them as mediators because, if you can imagine, in communities where Sharia law is important, to have a Dari-speaking mediator who's an expert in Sharia law to mediate um, your dispute would be a, a very attractive proposition. So we're, we're actively working with other organisations to see what we can do to build meaningful paths for these judges because they are highly educated professionals who are used to making decisions, exercising their power and their discretion, and we have a lot to learn from them. And uh, I think that the profession in Australia has a lot to gain from them. With the younger ones, would they have to go back to law school uh, and and re-qualify as a lawyer? Yes, these are the things that we're working through at the moment. To what extent would credit be given for um, their professional training and their academic qualifications? And uh, unfortunately, that's something that is worked out 
pretty much institution by institution. But certainly there would be minimum um, additional requirements for them to get a right to practice. And, the, and the, the younger judges understand this. Their focus at the moment is to become sufficiently proficient in English that they can then pursue studies and, and resume a career in the law. Shakila Shigaf says she and her family are very happy and they're looking forward to the future. But she is mindful that many of her former colleagues who have not escaped Afghanistan are living in hiding. I do feel for them. I'm very depressed and I still think about them. It's very scary for them where they live. They're horrified. And the way they're living at the moment, they have to change house to house every now and then so nobody can find them. And the people who are looking for them, so they don't kidnap them, they don't kill them, they're actually impatiently waiting to somehow get an opportunity to get out of Afghanistan because they do not feel safe, not even to live one day in Afghanistan. Under the Taliban, women can no longer be judges. What does that mean for the women of Afghanistan who have a legal issue, who need to come to court? As a judge um, that I have worked in Afghanistan, I 100% know that um, this is going to be very difficult for women. They're not even allowed to get out of the house. How can they go and fight for their rights? As a women judge that I used to solve cases to do sexual abuse, now, and I know that nobody else will be allowed to do that. So they just have to be locked and stay at home and never put their voice up or never speak up for themselves and um, one was very important as a woman for me was the cases I had to solve was attacking young girls as young as 17 just because of family problems because the man was in power men thinks they're in power to abuse to actually take over the law by themselves, they would not even wait for the judges to decide what uh, was a woman's fault. They will apply the charges. They would do what they want to do just to teach lesson to other women, just to tell other women, this is wrong, you do it, just because they were not allowed to marry who they want to. This is an example, just because they would decide to live um, independent. These are the things that would have happened more from families, from families who were not educated. In the countryside, they might just decide, okay, this is what this person done and charges may apply. This is not a formal or a government law. They will just decide how to punish a woman. And of course, it will always go against the woman, not the man. And now, of course, the courts and the judges can't protect these people. Yes, um, as a woman, every day I think back about the people who are living in Afghanistan. And I know even if they have problems, they might not go. Even if they have any issue, legal issues, they might not go out. Because they know if they go and speak up about it, they will be killed. Shakila Abawi Shigaf, the former head of the Afghan Women Judges Association, speaking there through an interpreter. And a very big thank you to Mojgan Rashidi Anwar, who translated our conversation, and also to my ABC colleague, Sawaiba Hanifi. 
Next week, in part two of our special on women judges, we talk to members of the International Association of Women Judges from a number of diverse countries, including Australia, and they're going to be speaking about the challenges they face and what gender diversity brings to legal decision-making. We still have these outdated yet strong traditions and misguided beliefs that prevails in our national psyche that women are not allowed to do certain jobs, but slowly breaking those barriers and it's slowly been accepted that women can be judges, women can be magistrate, those kind of things. Don't forget the program is available as a podcast from all your favourite platforms and, of course, available from the ABC Listen app. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Matthew Crawford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.